Hey, raise your hands, uh, show of hands, how many of you guys enjoy, really like fireworks? If you're like, I love fireworks. I grew up in California where you can't like personally light off fireworks. So when I moved to Nebraska, I like became an immediate uh, pyro. And I love fireworks. Fourth of July became one of my favorites. I love the... um, the like willow fireworks that like burst up in the air and then kind of cascade down. Um, you know what I mean? They're like a weeping willow. They're amazing. Um, okay. All, other question. How many of you guys like uh, stargazing or just like looking up at the stars? How many of you guys enjoy that? Yeah, same. It's amazing. I remember uh, years ago, I went to the Grand Canyon, hiked down it with some friends. And um, we, when we got to the bottom, it was, um, it was dark out. And we had looked up and we were shocked by the stars. I think actually that um, the Grand Canyon is uh, in the top 10 places in um, the U.S. to actually look at stars. It was so uninhibited. It was so bright, so vibrant, so vivid. We literally set up our tents so that we were, our bodies were in the tent, but our head was literally sticking out and we were sleeping so we could watch the stars. It was that crazy. Um, but fireworks and stars both get our attention, right? We both, we love both of them, but they get our attention in very different ways. See, fireworks are loud and stars are, I mean, they might be loud way out in space, but they're quiet to us, right? Fireworks are momentary, like there's a couple seconds and stars last for a really, really long time. Fireworks are made by man, stars are made by God, right? There's all these differences to them, but they both get our attention. And in reality, fireworks are made to glance at. We're made to glance at them. And then stars are made to gaze at. There's a big difference, right? The way you'd look at fireworks is very different than the way you would look at um, at stars. And this is the idea that Paul's trying to draw out in the verses that we have this morning. And, and he's urging us to quickly glance like a firework at our present suffering and to gaze or commit to gazing toward our future glory. You get what I'm saying? And we've been studying through Romans 8 for weeks now. And, and Paul explained that the gospel has something to do with our past. Namely, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus has dealt with our past and there's and we're comp- and our future, and that we're completely uncondemnable by His infinite, uh, unending grace. But also, the gospel has something to do with our present, which is the Spirit is indwelling us, fighting sin in us. And the gospel has something to do with our future, namely that we will die because we're mortal, right? But that God would, um, by His grace, resurrect us from the dead when Jesus comes back, and that we would actually dwell in Rome in our resurrected bodies in this new heavens and new earth. We learned that in verse. 11 last week. And so in this landscape of the greatest chapter ever, Romans chapter 8, Paul's explaining here of although the future glory is going to happen, although those new heavens and new earth are what we're going to inhabit, for right now, we're going to suffer. And for right now, life is going to be hard. So it's answering those questions that we go, man, if Jesus saves us, he loves us, why is all this stuff happening? And this is explaining, hey, it's going to be hard right now but there's hope for a glorious future. Does that make sense? And so, listen, if we're, if we're expected to glance at our present sufferings and gaze at our future glory, can we just be honest that usually we get that backwards? Like, we gaze like a star at our, at our present suffering. We're, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed, we're hurting. There's so much messy stuff going on in our lives and it feels like that's all we can see and that's all we can think about and that and we just end up gazing at it. 
right? We just can't, we're just so consumed by how we're presently suffering. And if we're supposed to gaze at future glory, can we just be honest that we basically just glance at it? Like, it's like we just, we barely think about heaven or we barely think about eternity or it's almost like a blip on a radar, a stranger passing by. And so most of our struggles come from a lack of perspective where we are glancing at what we should be gazing at and we are gazing at what we should be glancing at. You get what I'm saying? It's like there's this problem where we're going, we're so fixated, we're so gazing on our presence suffering that we have only got a moment to glance at future glory and God's saying let's reverse that let's use these verses to flip that and teach Christians how to live in a broken world and and mourn those things but also gaze and look forward to the future glorious reality so that's where we're going so if you are a Christian and you're going through suffering or you've been through suffering and I promise you will inevitably face suffering this sermon is for you and it's for me to understand how do we engage God and his good heart and our glorious future reality in the midst of a world that's really broken and really hard. Get where we're going? Can you imagine what our lives would look like if we got this, if we actually gazed toward our future glory and we did glance toward our present suffering? That's the hope for this morning. So uh, Romans 8.18, I think this is the main verse. If you're just memorizing one verse from the passages we're going through, this is the verse we picked. And so I'm going to read it, but this, we're just going to pick this verse apart and we're going to explain it using the rest of the verses. So Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, so I'm, I want to ask four questions and answer them. Number one, from this verse, what are the present suffering? What are the sufferings of this present time? What, what does he mean by that? Number two, what are, what is the glory that's going to be revealed to us? Like, what's he talking about what our future is like? Number three, he says they're not worth comparing. And so just answer the question, why are they not worth comparing? Present sufferings versus future glory. And number four, then how do we actually live that out? Like, how do we actually gaze at uh, future glory and glance at present suffering? Sound good? That's where we're going to go. So first question, what are, what are the sufferings of this present time? Uh, read verses uh, 19 through 22 with me, uh, or just glance at them. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, every square inch of it, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So two reasons. So when I ask the question, what are the sufferings of this present time? You're probably like, I can make a long list as, as we have time for. We all know that there's suffering in this world. What Paul is doing through these verses is not only explaining what the present sufferings are, but why we're suffering. And there's two reasons why we suffer in this world. Number one is that we live in a cursed world. We live in a cursed world. And so if you look at verse 20, the first indicator of this cursed world, he says it's subjected to futility. It's subjected to futility. So this world is cursed in its it's because it's futile. And so I didn't really know. I'm like, well, futile can mean a lot of things. It can mean vanity or it can mean meaninglessness or purposelessness. Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, uses the same exact word, and here's the context he uses it. He says, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in this corrupt, cursed world, there's a reality that all of us are tempted to this futility or cursed into this futility where we know God's real, but we aren't acknowledging his existence or giving thanks to him. So this world has taken the gifts of the giver and they have ran away with them and we're all guilty of that. And it's futile. It's meaningless. It's like you've enjoyed the gifts of God and you've turned away. It's like if you've seen the James Webb Space Telescope and the images, I think we actually have the star image uh, 
maybe somewhere, but, um, but it's like crazy of the mountainous stars. It's just like so beautiful. And if you could look at that and not think that God made that, it's like, what? And that's what we do. We're experiencing all these things or love or joy or space or whatever. And it's like, that's all meant to point us upward. And it's saying, no, our, our world is cursed into futility where we see these things and we don't end up seeing God. And we live as if he's not real. And we go chase and try to make art for ourselves other gods that ultimately aren't good and won't fulfill. So um, our world operates like God isn't real, which is idolatry. It's futile. Number two, he says in verse 21 that uh, in this cursed world, it's, there's bondage to corruption. In verse 21, bondage to corruption. This is mean that we're enslaved to depravity or we're enslaved to decay. And so when he's talking about creation, he's talking about humanity, but he's also specifically talking about nature and animals. So just think about nature and the corruption in nature. Like we have tornadoes ripping through cities. We have hurricanes uh, wreaking havoc through cities. We have uh, volcanoes erupting and earthquakes going, all these things happening and hailstorms and all this. And it's like, yeah, like literally nature is under the curse of the fall and that you can see that bondage to corruption as well. Think of animals like, I, like shark bites or spider bites or aggressive dogs or whatever it may be. Even animals are hostile to humans and ho- animals are hosp- hostile to each other. There's a bondage to corruption. And you think of just people or humanity, like the world is corrupt. There's racism, there's rape, there's murder, there's uh, politically corrupt. I mean, there's all these things and the bondage to corruption or slavery to destruction is literally saying we're magnetized. Everything in creation is magnetized to this decaying corruption that's happening. And we know that. Like, that's not a new thought to us, but we see that we're enslaved to depravity. And number three is in verse, or the the third descriptor of the cursed world is in uh, verse 22. And he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now, um, my wife, we have three kids, so she's given birth three times, been pregnant three times. And uh, some women in our church, so moms in the room, some of you guys are like, oh, being pregnant is the easiest thing in the world. Like, I just like worked until I, you know, my water broke. And I'm like, number one, you're my hero. Number two, I don't know how you do it. But like Kristen is like, and I can't imagine how, like, it, it's so difficult to be pregnant. Your feet are swollen. Your horm- hormones are changing. Your body's changing. And, it, and your belly's there. And, like, and one, she really liked her cup holder. Like, it was kind of like a built-in cup holder she'd always put here. But, like, I just remember, like, it was a whole deal when she would turn over in bed. Like, she was like, okay, I'm going to turn over. I'm like, okay. And it was like, I'm like, are you turned over yet? She's like, no, I'm almost there. I'm like, okay. And then she'd finally get there. And I'm like, and, but then all of the pains of pregnancy are real. But, but then actually delivering is the hardest, most painful part, right? And I remember like every night before she gave birth to our kids, she would cry and we would just sit there. I'd just, you know, comfort her. And, and, and she's like, this is really going to be hard. This is really going to hurt. This is gonna really be. And I'm like, yeah, there's, there's nothing you can say to make that any better. But the imagery that he's giving in verse 22 is that all of creation is in labor. Like, like could you imagine being in labor for thousands of years, like, there's a girl in our church that was in labor for 42 hours, okay, and having to have a C-section. And we're all like, oh, that's the worst thing. But could you imagine being in labor for thousands of years? And, like, the, the, the only glimmer of hope in labor is that you're going to see that baby. But there's a reality in us that you just, like, indefinitely, like, this cursed world is in labor. Like, it's painful, and it's hard. And if you're in labor, you're wondering, like, this has got to stop, or something's got to come that, that's better. And the, there's this whole groaning in our world that's going, it, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you're going, this can't be it. 
Like, it's got to get better. Or, or, or when's it going to end? When are we going to stop having this conflict or all this stuff? And it's like you're in the pains of childbirth. You're in that pinnacle moment of pain, and there's no relief. We're suffering in agony together. We're in a corrupt world every direction we look. And so this cursed world is futile, it's corrupt, and it's painful. But the question becomes, well, how did it get this way? And Genesis 3 actually explains how creation got this way. So I'm going to read it because I'm not rather just read it than explain it because it's going to speak for itself. Um, but if you have your Bibles, Genesis 3, uh, 14 through 24, this is where the curse came in. So God creates Adam and Eve. He made it heavens, earth, animals, all this stuff. It's beautiful. It's amazing. He says everything's good. Gives them one simple rule. Hey, don't eat from this tree. What do they do? They eat from the tree. And sin enters the world, and thus a curse because of the sin enters the world. So this is it. God says to the serpent who tempted them, this is Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This, verse 15, is the first gospel promise. God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, meaning Satan, and her offspring, meaning eventually the seed that would lead to Jesus. He shall bruise your head, he'll destroy you, and you shall bruise his heel, damage you. This is talking about the cross, right? Jesus is damaged, but he ultimately destroys Satan through the resurrection. Verse 16, to the woman, Here's the curse. Sorry, ladies. Hate that this happened. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So this is part of the curse. This wasn't the original plan, okay? You can talk to Eve about it when you get to heaven. Uh, but number two, the second part of the curse, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So marriage was intended to be harmonious and beautiful and good. And he's saying, now your desire is going to be contrary to your husband and you guys are going to butt heads and, and, and have conflict. And he's going to rule over you, meaning like heavy handed, like this whole dynamic. So that's part of the curse. He goes, Adam, here's your curse, man. Uh, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. So now the ground is cursed because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. So remember, they're in this beautiful, lush Garden of Eden, and it's amazing. And when he says the word thorns and thistles, Adam has no idea what he's talking about. Like, could you picture roses precurse without thorns? Like, that's, so thorns and thistles are this demonstration or this idea of depravity or of the curse. They're going to poke you, and it's going to be dry and desert land. Like, and he's going, you're, I'm cursing the ground that was once lush and produced all this fruit, and now you're going to have thorns and thistles and dry. And he says, you shall eat the plants of the field. Uh, third uh, or aspect is, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So he's saying, you're going to work, and you're going to work hard. So labor or working wasn't part of the fall. They worked before the fall. But hard work or laborious, like this, like just sweating is part of the fall. And he says, the last curse is till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he says, hey, that at that moment, that's when Adam started to age and get gray hair and, and all that stuff, right? And eventually die, although it took him 900 years. Um, but he says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things, or all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothe them. By the way, another gospel picture. What were Adam and Eve covering themselves in? Figs or leaves and all this stuff. God says, hey, you don't, you're trying to cover yourself. I'm going to cover you. What's he cover them with? Skins of animals. How would he get skins of animals? He'd have to kill them, sacrifice them. It's a picture of what Jesus would do and dying for us and covering, him, covering us with his righteousness um, by that sacrifice. So that's 21. 
Uh, 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him, saddest verse, out of the garden of Eden to work the ground, this cursed ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So we live in a cursed world. How did he get cursed? Because sin. Sin cursed it and God subjected it to futility, right? So all those things are true. So we know, why do we suffer? Live in a cursed world. Second reason we suffer is because we live for a coming world. So look again at verse uh, 23 and 25. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Okay, so that's the picture. Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. Verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see. So he's explaining the Christian life and that we're groaning inwardly for something better or that we're waiting for what we're hoping for what we don't quite see. So we live for a coming world. So I want you to, say, I want you to know you are not home and neither am I. And I love vacations. I'm sure we all do, but there's nothing like your own bed with your own fridge and your own snack pantry and 11 p.m. popcorn, the whole thing, right? Like there's something special about being home. And he's saying, you're not home in this life. You're living for a coming world. You're waiting eagerly for that. You're hoping for what you currently don't see. And so right now we're sojourners. We're wanderers. Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. So that our passport doesn't say America or wherever. And, and John 17, Jesus says you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And so the world is gonna hate you. So you just need to know we live in a cursed world and we live for a coming world. And that's problematic. That means suffering is gonna come. But I just wanna pause and acknowledge this. This is personal to all of us. Like if we were just to spend five minutes and say, can you just write what you're currently suffering through? Your job being difficult, your, you know, the, the sickness that's happening, your scarred relationship, the marriage is difficult, your kids are running away, your, whatever it all, if we were just to take five minutes to write down a list of everything we're suffering through, we would just, it would be pages and pages and pages. And, like this is personal to all of us. Just found out that a young 21-year-old girl in our church just got diagnosed with cancer. I literally found that out last night. Like we're, we're in a broken world with hard stuff and all of us are yearning with this reality that life shouldn't be this way. It's hard and it's burdensome and it's unbearable at times and it's confusing and it's unfair and all of those things are true and it's because we live in a cursed world because of sin and we also live for a coming world. We're not home and so we're looking for those realities. That's the present suffering uh, or that's the suffering of this present time. So that's heavy, but what's the future glory uh, that's going to be revealed to us. Um, look at verse 21. Read with me again. Um, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the first reality in this glorious future is that the curse is going to be reversed. The curse that we just talked about, the futility, the pain, the corruption is going to be reversed. He says that the freedom, it's going to be set free from all of that. So again, I'm going to read this rather than just explaining it. But Revelation, we went first book. This is the last book of the Bible. Revelation 21, uh, second to last chapter. I'm just going to read with this new heavens and new earth, the way God describes it in his word. Sec or Revelation 21, one through five. 
Then I saw, so this is what it means to be set free from corruption. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In the Garden of Eden, God was walking with them. And they sinned, and, that, and he got kicked out. So now you get this picture of him walking with us again. Verse 4, I want you to hear how personal this is. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So it doesn't say that your every tear will be wiped away. It says that God will use his divine thumb and actually wipe your personal tear away um, from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Futility, corruption, um, pain, the cursed world, all that's passed away. Verse 5, and he who seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. This is what our glorious f- f- uh, future has in store for us. And so I want to point out two things. Number one, I think this is understandable to us. This isn't probably new information. Is that everything bad in this new heaven and new earth will be um, undone. Everything bad will be gone. So there's no more natural disasters. There's no more meteorologists are out of jobs in this new heaven and new earth. Like they're not given a weather update. It's like it's 71 and no humidity. Like it's California weather. You know, we're like, thank you, Jesus. You know, um, it's going to be amazing. So no more thunderstorms, no more tornadoes, no more hail, like all this stuff. Um, and so you have this creation is restored and all the bad aspects of creation is restored. Animals, there's harmony and there's beauty, but then also just people are restored and that God's new people, his, his sons and daughters in this new heaven and earth are actually uh, free of sin. Like it's like beautiful and amazing. So there's no more murder, there's no more sickness, there's no more hatred, there's no more all this stuff. I think we understand that. But what I don't think we generally understand about new heavens and earth is that not only will the bad things be gone, but the good things will be better. So track with me on this. My wife and I were just in Mexico this last week. It was amazing. We were on a catamaran and we went snorkeling and we were going on this to this island and I looked over the boat and it was the clearest, bluest water I'd ever seen in my life. And I've gotten to go to some cool places too and this was like different. And I remember thinking, because I was studying for this text and I was like, this water's amazing, but it's under the curse right now. So like however amazing and beautiful this water is, it's, it's stale compared to what it will be in the new creation. You tracking with me? I'm like, so I've never even, the most beautiful ocean I've ever seen is stale in comparison. I love concerts. I love music. I think you guys probably do too. And I got to go to Ben Rector, uh, his concert. It was amazing with a bunch of friends. Also, shout out to my boy D. Best, David Bessonen. He's the uh, saxophone player. He's a king. He's a legend. But uh, it was awesome. And I'm just, you know, we're with the McCoskeys and the Killers, some of our closest friends. And we're dancing and we're celebrating. And we're singing. It's awesome. And I had the thought, this, this is amazing, but every note of music, every beautiful, the band singing up, Jesse, such a good job. I'm like, but that's, our singing is under the curse still. So the most beautiful music we've ever heard is subjected to futility. It's not as good as it's going to be. I love, I love animals. I love dogs. They're so cute. I love my dog, Legend. He's a mini gold noodle. He's amazing. And I think he's the best little dog in the world. And I'm like, dude, but he's subjected to futility. Like, however great he is, dogs are going to be better in heaven. And I, I love community. And last night, we, we played card games with our best friends, like Nate and Becca Morgan and Ben and Katie Oltman. And we're sitting around the table, and we're playing cards, and we're laughing, we're having fun. And I have my thought. I'm thinking, 
this is amazing. This night's so fun, but it's under the curse of futility. Like, I, we, as much as you've ever enjoyed a friendship, you've never enjoyed it as pure as it will be in the new heavens and new earth. You get what I'm saying? Everything good in this world will be better. Whatever is great here will be stale in comparison to what it will be like in the new heaven and new earth. You get what I'm saying? And so the question becomes, well, praise God, the curse is going to be reversed. That's what we're looking forward to. But how is it going to be reversed? Like, how, how, how is it getting reversed? Galatians 3, verse 13 answers that question. Galatians 3, 13, this is what uh, it says, is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So this is the gospel. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. So remember what God said is going to be produced because of the curse in Genesis 3? He said thorns, right? Thorns and thistles. These things that he didn't even, Adam didn't even know what were, but were going to come out of the ground as a demonstration of this curse. Remind me what Jesus' crown was made of when he was pinned to the cross? Thorns. It's this picture, this connection saying, you brought the curse into the world, these thorns. Jesus is then taking these thorns upon himself to be crucified, to take the curse that we were supposed to be under and redeem it for us, or redeem it for us by taking it for us. So this is the beautiful reality of the cross of like, we don't just get this new creation because we got lucky and won the lotto. Like someone had to pay for it and it was Jesus's death and his life um, for us. He took that curse for us. And so the first reality of this new glorious future is, is that the curse is going to be reversed. The second one is the culmination of our adoption. So I, this is a confusing verse, but we have to understand it. Verse 23 in Romans 8, verse 23, he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So it's weird language, right? He says we're waiting for the adoption as sons. So I want to be clear. This doesn't mean that we're not adopted right now and that someday we will be. This means that, um, uh, and Skylar just preached last week, verse 15, we have the spirit of adoption. So right now, if you place your faith in Jesus, you are an adopted, beloved, cherished son or daughter of the king, Okay. So what does he mean by adoption is sons? Well, if you look at verse 19, it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. So track with me. He says, we're waiting for the adoption of sons. Right now, we're proclaiming we have faith in Jesus. We believe in you. And because of that, we're saying, I'm a child of God, and he's my father. But but in the new creation, new heavens, new earth, with the resurrection, God is then declaring over us definitively, you are adopted. You are my son or daughter, not by our proclamation or profession, but just by the tangible reality. God is definitively proving the ones I resurrect are my sons and daughters. So it's like stamped an approval that we would see it, not just claim it, but we would see it through that. And then he says something unique because he says adoption of sons, redemption of our bodies, connecting those two things together. And so I just want to explain this. When he says the first fruits of the Spirit in verse 23, the Spirit is currently a major gift to us, right? He convicts us of sin, reminds us of truth. Verse 13, he helps us fight uh, the flesh, uh, points us to Jesus, gives us gifts, all these things. But the first fruits of the Spirit mean what the Spirit's done for us right now is only the beginning. And there's more to come. Namely, verse 11 says the Spirit's going to raise us from the dead. He's going to resurrect us. And so check this out. What Paul is getting to in the redemption of our bodies and this whole conversation is that we will get to experience the new heavens, the new heaven and new earth. Okay, so 
just for a second, think about all the things that we labor for that we won't ever actually get to experience. Um, Susan B. Anthony, if you're familiar with her, she uh, labored as an advocate for women's suffrage and, and, and rights and, and, and to be able to vote. And um, so she gave her life to that cause, for women to be able to have equal rights and vote. She died in 1906, but in 1920, the 19th Amendment was passed where it gave women rights to vote. So she never got to see it, although she gave her life to it. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, labored for uh, equality among race, uh, for the same rights that uh, white people would have, black people would have the whole thing, right? And, and so he's laboring for civil rights. He dies in 1968. He never gets to see President Barack Obama be elected as president, right? That would have been a major victory in light of seeing not only equal rights, but now the leader of the United States is a black man. So all this stuff. Elon Musk, you think his endeavor right now that he's running towards and moving towards is to have a self-sustaining city on Mars, on the red planet, right? He's laboring, spending all these resources, but it could be 10, 15, 20, 30 years before we actually, that ever actually happens. And so Elon Musk, as great as he is, he may not ever be able to see it. But you think about all the things, think about all the people that have died of cancer that have been working on a cure for cancer. There are things that we work for that we won't be a part of, but we have hope because maybe our future children or generations can. This is what Paul is saying. You get to experience the new heaven and new earth. This isn't, the curse reverse world isn't something you're like, I can't wait for my grandkids to have. I'm gonna labor on, but they'll get it someday. It's saying, no, 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 you're gonna be resurrected and you're gonna experience it too. It's glorious, you're included in it. So those two things, present suffering, future glory. The question becomes, as we understand these things, then why aren't they worth comparing? Like, why aren't those two things worth comparing? So third question, and he gives us two hints. Number one, verse 18, look again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. So the first reason they're not worth comparing is time. Um, now, the Bible uses the word eternal or eternity about 50 times. And eternity is really hard for us to understand, right? Because it's like, it's just without, dura- We've ne- we never experienced anything that's infinite, right? Even our world, even the things we know that last as long, even the stars, like all of them have a duration. They started, they'll end. We don't have a concept of what forever is or what unending or infinite is. And so I saw Francis Chan do this years ago, um, but uh, there's this rope that I got off Amazon and, uh, and it's a great rope, uh, nice and nice and thick and long or whatever. But uh, anyways, um, this I, this is like so powerful to me. T- Ten years ago, as I first came to know Jesus. But um, if we think of this, imagine this rope uh, is a picture of eternity or eternal. And it doesn't just go to the back of, of the stage. It actually goes all the way to Memorial Stadium, right? Down the road, it's but a few miles, whatever, goes there. And so Here's the, and it doesn't just stop at Memorial Stadium, it actually goes all the way to, um, to the Empire State Building, right? It goes all the way to the very top, and it comes down, it doesn't stop there, it goes to the streets of Morocco, right? And it's there, and all the stuff, and it doesn't stop at Morocco, it goes down to um, the tallest tower in Japan, in Tokyo. So it goes there too, then it goes down to Australia, and it's at the beaches, and it's great, then it goes over to Cape Town, then it goes into Santa Monica, California, and all these places, and it just goes, and it goes, and it goes, and it doesn't stop in America, or wrap around the whole world, it actually goes all the way to the moon and, and the stars and all this stuff, and it just keeps going and going and going and going, all this. And it's like, this is this picture of eternity, right? It's just like forever and ever and ever and ever. And then what the picture he's saying is, this little end right here is your life. This little end is our 80 years we get here. And what happens is we gaze at this and we forget 
all of this that is just completely endless. And he's going, it's not, this isn't worth comparing. This could be terrible. This could be 80 years of complete and utter suffering, like the most unimaginable things, and it still wouldn't be worth comparing to all of this. It's just unending. And so, but what's crazy is the way you live your life here dictates all the rest of this, how, what you'll do for eternity, either glor- like glorying in Jesus and his new creation or suffering an eternity apart from his grace, right? This is the reality. And so it's like to wrap our heads around, why is it not worth comparing? Because whatever happens here dictates all of this, but this is gonna be so forgotten. When you're all the way down here, when you're all the way, you know, 80 billion years later and you're here and you're going, man, wait, what happened on that blue little area? Like, I don't even know. And so it's like, get this in your mind to Think about the glory of eternity. Like we're actually going to live eternally with God if you're a believer. And to think about, man, this is hard, but I'm looking forward to this moment right here. And this won't even, la- this won't even be a thought, right? The second reason he gives and why they're not worth comparing is glory. And he says the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now we talked about the glory that's be revealed to us, right? New heaven and new earth. Not only are bad things gone, but good things are even better But just think about this. We've never experienced a moment in our lives without sin or temptation. Like, could you imagine waking up and experiencing a relationship with God that wasn't hindered by your sin or your temptation or whatever, but just pure communion with God? That's, we get to walk with him and and enjoy him. Can you imagine just walking with him, how beautiful that will be? Um, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 is kind of a, a, a connected verse to Romans 18. And Romans 8, 18, and he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all, all comparison. So the same thing, comparison, present suffering, eternal glory. And he says it's producing a, an eternal or a, a weighty glory right? Like an eternal weight of glory. And so if you've ever seen, like just think of a teeter-totter, or if you've ever seen like a double pan scale that has, you set one thing on it, and then you set another thing, and they kind of like offset, or they can balance. So picture on one side of the scale of this teeter-totter, whatever, you put a semi-truck, which the semi-truck is like, the natural semi-truck is about 35,000 pounds. So you put that on it, and that's our present suffering. And it's heavy, and it's real, and that truck has hit us over and over and over again. And so obviously it's just like this. But on the other side of present suffering is the future glory, and you drop Mount Everest on it, which weighs literally 350 trillion pounds. And in that moment, no matter how heavy you think this truck is, it's going to launch in space like it's a like it's a raisin. I mean, it's just gonna be nothing compared to this eternal weight of glory. And that's what he's saying. So listen, not only, even if, even if glory wasn't involved and this life was gonna be short, but this is all gonna be the same. And we're just gonna live the next 80 billion years with the same type of life as what we lived right now. It would still not be worth comparing because it's longer. And it's like, why would I 80 years to 80 billion years? But he's saying, not only is it longer, but it's better. And it's gonna be glorious. It's gonna be so weighty with glory and goodness. It's gonna launch this suffering semi-truck into oblivion. You're not even gonna remember it. It's gonna be that good and glorious. It's not worth comparing. And so I want to finish by answering the question, then what does it look like in our lives? Like, what should that look like in our lives? Like, what does it look like to gaze at uh, future glory and uh, glance at present suffering? And so two things quickly. Number one, as Christians, we need to learn to embrace suffering. We need to learn to embrace suffering. So three, so three things here, uh, sub-quick points. Number one, expect suffering. Christian in the room, expect suffering. Uh, 
suffering and Christianity are so interconnected through the Bible that uh, our core values at our church are like down, up, and out, gospel, growth, gather, go, right? Uh, gather as a church, scatter as a church. There's a whole church planning movement in China, and one of their core values is suffering. Like one of the things they value, and they're saying this is true of our church, is suffering. And so you're like, wait, well, oh, I'm going to go check out a different church. Okay, that sounds great. You know, it's like, no, but it's so interwoven to the story that it's like we live in a cursed world. We live for a coming world. Therefore, we're going to suffer. So Jesus has never promised alleviation from that or protection from that. We're in the world. We're not of it. The world's going to hate us. We're going to suffer. So we just need to expect it. So don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be caught off guard when suffering comes. That's the reality. Um, God has promised something so much better than temporary comfort from your pain. Number two, not just expect it, but number two, explain suffering. Now, I need to explain what I mean. I'm not saying that look for the answer of why you're suffering, because I think you'll just spin into a really unhealthy place. We may not have an answer for why we're suffering, but what you need to explain in light of your suffering is why you're not suffering. Because one of the main things we think about when bad things happen is, God must be mad at me. Like, God must be punishing me. And so when suffering comes, something bad happens, I immediately think, like, have I not read my Bible recently? Is there a sin I haven't confessed? Did I not do this right? Like, whatever. And, and it's, like this, like, it's like this punished little kid thing that we think of. is like, you know, my dad's mad at me, and he's, and he's kicking me out or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. Jesus took on all the punishment. He satisfied all the anger of God. So you need to know the Father, if you're in Christ, has never been mad at you and will never punish you. He will, Hebrews 12 says, discipline you. That's out of love and grace to form you. That's a longer piece to under explain. So he, he will discipline you in love and in grace, but he's never brought suffering in your life because he's mad at you or because you, you haven't been doing something right. And sometimes, a lot of the times, you suffer just because we live in a cursed world and we live for a coming world and it's broken and it's futile and it's corrupt and it's painful and that's the reason. So you need to explain suffering and fight the lie that you think that God's mad at you, okay? Number three, the last, this is the most important, is exploit suffering, Ex exploit suffering. See, you need to understand God wants to do something in your suffering. So the next two weeks, Brett's gonna talk about God helping us in our weakness. I'm gonna follow up and talk to you about how God works all things together for good. It's not the good we think. It's, I'll be able to explain that, but we're gonna talk through what God does in this in the next couple weeks, but God wants to do something in your suffering. It's not a bad word in the Bible. So Philippians 3 says you can bond with Jesus through suffering because he was a suffering king. Uh, James 1, 2 says he Suffering tests our faith and produces more faith. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1 forces it. Suffering helps us comfort other people who are suffering in the same ways. And you've probably been comforted by someone going, I've been through that before. I've been through a divorce before. I've been through abuse before. I've been through a miscarriage before. And it's like there's something helpful about other people knowing how you feel and going through it. And 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, suffering helps wean us off of this world to long and hunger for the next one to come, right? So embrace suffering. Expect it, explain it, and exploit it. And the last thing is, the last application point is be eager for eternity. Be eager for it. All of this whole sermon of the text leads to these points. Death should not scare us. It should excite us. Not in like a weird way where we're like, yeah, I can't wait to die. But in a sense of like, I just have a peaceful confidence that whenever Jesus chooses to take me, I'm going to be with him in glory. And it's going to be great. Most of us live life, if we're honest, wanting to squeeze out everything this world has to offer and afraid that we won't get to all of it before we die, right? 
We live in a bucket list culture. And if I can just be completely honest, let you into my heart, for the first time ever, I'm 30 now, I've got three kids, church, whatever. And for the first time in my life, I think that I actually am afraid to die. And it's weird, and it's coming out in weird ways, but I just, like a self-preservative reality, like I've been flying a lot, and I'm on the plane, I'm thinking about, like, man, if I die, and I think it's just because I have more to lose than I ever have, and, I, and there's experiences that I want to experience. And so I just have to be completely honest. If, if, if I die before I get to walk Gracie down the aisle, you know, if I die before I get to watch Haddon find his purpose and calling in life, if I die before Eden, I get to watch Eden place her faith in Jesus and get baptized. If I die before I get to grow old with Kristen. If I die before I get to be a grandpa and take the kids on a family vacation together. If I die before I don't get to see these other countries or get us into a new building, whatever it is, all of that's okay. Because whatever I would have missed out on in this little tiny space will be nothing compared to the rest of it right? It's like, man, those experiences could be great. I promise you this is going to be better. And I have to remind myself of that daily. He says, eagerly waiting means there's a joyful anticipation. You ask any fiance how many days to your wedding, and she knows it, right? It's like, like, yeah, I, I get it. It's like you're waiting and you're longing for that day. And what would it look like for us to be so hungry for heaven, so hungry for the new creation, for God to come back and restore it? To close, there's a guy named Brad Brestel, uh, and he, he's a pastor at Lincoln Brian, one of the best guys I know. He was really, really successful in the finance world, decided to become a pastor later in life and help people lead them into the joy of generosity. And um, uh, Brad's just an amazing guy. He's a spiritual director, sits with people. And uh, we had a conversation, and eight years ago, he was diagnosed with throat cancer, really severe throat cancer. And so he had to get radiation but he, in order to take the cancer out of his throat, it damaged his throat severely to the point where he can't swallow anymore. Um, so that, that's gone, that ability's gone. And he also, um, he can't salivate anymore either. So he can't talk. He's a pastor and he can't talk for more than 10 minutes straight because his throat will dry out so much that he can uh, choke uh, or, or it can cause more damage. And if his throat's that dry and he tries to wet it with too much water, he can also choke from that as well and die. So uh, a year ago, Brad got a feeding tube. So he hasn't eaten a meal with anybody in a year. He has to feed through the feeding tube. And, um, and so a couple weeks ago, I was praying for him. He went to Texas to meet with the best specialists in the world in regards to his throat to see if they could repair it. And so he went, did all these tests, met with all these, the best doctors in the world, and they concluded that his, his situation is inoperable. Um, he's, he's living, the cancer's gone, but um, um, he will eat from a feeding tube for the rest of his life. He'll never know the joys of a you know, a burger, a steak, whatever, for the rest of his life. Um, he'll feed through that. Number two, found out that he will eventually have to breathe through his throat um, and, um, and so to bypass his mouth. And um, they'll have to remove his larynx, which means that he won't be able to talk. He'll lose his voice. And that's all happening progressively and, and, and soon. And so I was talking to him, and I just was like, man, I just, as a pastor, I can't imagine. And he's, he doesn't primarily preach. He's just a shepherd with people and talking with them and counseling. I can't imagine losing your voice and all this suffering and how it's impacted his life. And he told me, he said, Austin, I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm serious. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm more in touch with my humanity. I'm more aware of my frailty as a finite human in an infinite God that I'm more intimate with Jesus than I ever have been. I wouldn't change it for the world. God said, I'll take it away. I wouldn't let him. 
This has been a joy, and, 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 and I, uh, he said, I'm longing for eternity, right, more than I ever have. And he texted me the other day, and he said, uh, if I have something important to say, I better say it soon. How about I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, strength? And so I'm like, man, Brad gets it. He gets Romans 8 because he was forced to get it, right? Like in this moment, like I got it done that. He's glancing at his present suffering and he's gazing at the future glory. He's embracing that he's suffering and he's eager for eternity. And so I texted him the other day this to finish. And I said, in light of Romans 8, 18, I said, Brad, I consider that the present suffering of throat cancer, tube feeding, the inability to swallow and losing my larynx is not worth comparing to the glory of someday shouting at the top of my lungs in my resurrected body about how amazing Jesus is. He said, amen. Let's look for that day. Let's pray.